Back on. Exodus. Stop it. <laughs> I never hit the break button. Look at that. Okay. Welcome to Exodus Nation. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome. Hello, everyone, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. As you can tell, we are not in the dungeon today. <laughs> we are in a very, very, very beautiful atmosphere. We are with a very beautiful person. I want to welcome everybody to the show. It's such a special day. I actually, for the first time ever, have an actual cameraman. It's, it's my big brother, his little brother. Tyrone T.Y. Morris is working our cameras for us today. Tyrone, we appreciate you greatly, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank this you, This is a very important day, and we need this to be done properly. So I want to make sure that I give a proper introduction because we have, for the first time, a special guest in the house. Yes, we do. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. I've been excited. <laughs> We've been excited. Yes, we have. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting with a person who is holding five degrees, not only in criminology, but also social work and a master's within criminal justice. Four-year security police. Is that how you would say that? Or is it MP? Is that not? Well, in the Air Force, we call it SP. SP. Security police. I'm going to do that again. Four-year SP, that is security police of the Air Force. I am honored because I have a very close friend of me right now who's in the Air Force. He's growing to be a strong soldier. I'm proud of this man. Thank you, uh, Devin, for your service. And just thinking of the Air Force just makes me want to think of the little homies that I got serving. So anytime I'm with someone who's served for our country. To me, it's a great honor. It's a great privilege. This yes, person is. is also an author, advocate, whistleblower, whistleblower. Y'all, I'm sitting with a whistleblower <laughs> today, okay? Do you understand the impact of this? But most important to me, 24-year veteran of activism. 24 years Thank of you. activism in Columbus, Ohio, yes. fighting for civil rights, police reform. Not only is this person a leader, not only is this person someone who inspires those like me who fight this fight every day, gives us a reasoning at this point to continue fighting the fight. But uh, on the side note, she also supplements all her work by being a lieutenant of the Columbus Police Division. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, please welcome Melissa McFadden. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. This is a, this yes. is a big day to me. I've, um, I've waited to talk to you for months now. Anytime I see you, you ask me if I have questions. I have so many questions. I already know they're not going to fit. <laughs> they're not going to fit in this because right now we're sitting here talking about your book, Walking the Thin Black Line. Yes. Mm -hmm. We're not even going to be able to get every single question about the book into this conversation. I know that. But I definitely want to start. I want to continue this past today because talking to you, every time I talk to you, I walk away with knowledge. I love that. As I'm reading this book, I can say for sure, and I told you this, I have mental issues, PTSD, with the Columbus Police. Mm -hmm. I've gone through some trauma, tra traumatic things in the past. You are probably the first actual police officer that I'm able to sit down with. Before I go any farther, can you please give us your disclosure? Your, uh... Yes. First, I want to say thank you again. Thank I'm you. I'm glad to be on your show. I've watched it. I love it. And I am sitting here as a private citizen. Private I citizen. I do not represent the Columbus Division of Police. 
I, these are my own personal opinions and my experience that we'll talk about today. I've wondered if that makes me feel a little bit calmer just because, again, I felt that when I first started talking to you, this was going to be some kind of breakthrough and make me feel differently about the police. Make me maybe appreciate them a little more. I don't think your book did that. <laughs> I think your book may have strengthened my own resolve of why I fight the fight that I fight. Everything that I read in that book was what I guess I had suspicions of. I had it in my mind. I knew I could never really put fact to my own thoughts. What you did was you, you put those facts there. You showed us things that we don't know that we're missing. There are parts of this book that touched me in, in so many ways, just being that it's about my neighborhood. It's about our city. Mm-hmm. I understood when I was reading it how people say when they read a book that's written so well about New York, you can feel the grit, the grind, the smell of the streets. That's what I felt with this book when it came to Columbus, Ohio. So it's not just educational, but it's so it's so articulated. Thank you. I felt this book. And precise. So precise. And precise. I, it, specifically, I can remember when you were talking about the busing and me going back and reflecting in my mind how I felt about busing mm-hmm. and uh it made me have a conversation with my mother later on that day because i told bro man i remember when the busing came in i went to one school i thought i was going to go to the class that i would normally go to and they was like nah you get on this bus ship me out here i went to a different school came home told my mom you know i was all pumped up i called my mom and she was like no it wasn't that big of a deal boy <laughs> they sent me notifications in advance. You just didn't know what was going on. So I had an idea. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling. I wish I could have recorded that conversation. <laughs> I remember saying on air, that don't sound right, dude. Yeah, it I sounded did. like you got kidnapped. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and, I thought uh, I did. She told me, she said, you really wanted to go to Kent Elementary. And your busing, that was the stop. But you actually got shipped to Barnett. So as I saw all my other friends go in the building and they like, uh-uh, you. And, you know, I was always in the office sometimes. So I was thinking that was the bad buzz. I didn't know. <laughs> and, and that was one of the first points that stood out to him. I can tell you for sure. One of the first points that stood out to me, because I called him immediately mm-hmm. in chapter one, <laughs> as you're just explaining an illegal search of a car. Right. I realized all of a sudden out of nowhere, the book is not what I thought it was going to be. Right. I thought the book, I didn't know what I expected. I didn't expect off the off the rip of the book you were teaching me rights that I have that I never knew I had. Hey, that was That's, the that was the bait. I think most people think because most officers when they write a book they mm. are actually praising the police department. They're talking mm-hmm. about how they were the hero and their crime ridden city and they saved the day. But I wanted something real. I wanted it to come across to the citizens of what I was feeling through my twenty four years of fighting the racism. I was sick and tired of seeing our black community suffer, and I had to do something about it. It wasn't enough that I'm in there fighting for every day, and under my watch, things don't happen because I'm there. It wasn't enough. So I had to expose the whole system of policing because if I didn't do it, who would? And it would just continue on. Right. So now you know. Thank you. Now somebody needs to do something about it. You know now. What, What inspired you to go into this field? Because you got some interesting things that I think that, uh, you know, people would like to know about. How long has this been rooted in you? Well, I grew up in West Virginia. Um, Beckley, West Virginia, to be precise. I graduated from there. But when I was 14 years old, I always wanted to be a police officer. It's something about that profession. I just was thought it was prestigious. I didn't have run-ins with the law or anything. I was an obedient child. 
And I just thought that was something I always wanted to do. So because where I'm from is such a small town, I decided I need to get experience. So I said, let me go in the Air Force, be police, learn, and then when I get out, become a police officer. And so that's what I did. So I signed up. When I turned 18, I left and was wow. stationed in Michigan and stationed in the country of Turkey. And then when I got out, my mom had moved here. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got here to Columbus. Gotcha. And I joined. I, I applied for the police department the first time. Of course, they turned me down the second time I applied. And that's not unusual. I know an officer right now has been on 20-some years. He had to apply four times. And currently our hiring process continues to discriminate against females and African-Americans. Well, still to this day. And and I definitely want to get into that a little bit deeper mm-hmm. because the things that you put in the book, you actually talk about before you're even in training, if you actually make it through the application process. Mm-hmm. Before you even get to training, they're already looking to get you out during your physical. Yep. They're Can, always looking to get you out. How do, how do you get how do you get dismissed during a physical though? What is it that could get <laughs> you dismissed unless you're in bad health? I remember Chief Jackson telling a story about how he had to have a grip. The doctor would shake his hand, and if he, he failed him for not having a grip. And so... Like he, limp wrist, you're saying? Like, Is, if I shook your hand and tried to squeeze your hand, they would have to squeeze your hand. And he failed. Just one time. Can, do, can you do it again? Like, well, once you know... It's not a current thing. Oh, I just okay. know the story. <laughs> that's a story that yeah, Chief, Jackson, Chief Jackson... Right. Chief, Chief Jackson, Jackson always tells. No, and, that's what I was wondering with him. Like, hey, did they give you another chance? <laughs> and I think they tried to fail him on the grip. So wow. the next time he said he did it, he sh- shook the doctor's hand so hard, it, he went to his knees. He yes. shook his hand so hard yes. that it, he went to his knees. So it's he a good ended story. up passing. I like that one. So Chief Jackson used to always tell that story about yeah. how, was, how they would eliminate him. And it's a c- constant thing that's going on now. But I got on the department and on coaching, that's the first story I talked to you about in the first chapter mm-hmm. is how I see this illegal search go on. And I expose this officer at roll call about this illegal search in front of his sergeant and in front of all the officers, not realizing now I'm from West Virginia. And if you ever been to West Virginia, we were pretty um, kind of back in the day, we were really slow, like right. um, with the world. I was very sheltered with my mom. We went to church she taught me the Bible, but I didn't go out or anything like that. So it was very sheltered. So I did not know that police, there was a cover-up culture in policing. I did not know at that time that I'm not supposed to expose wrongdoing. Because in the military, if you did wrong, everybody would get punished. And you're expected to expose wrongdoing in the military. So that's what I was thinking. If we're a paramilitary organization, I would easily flow from the Air Force to the division and fit in just fine. The very first incident that I describe in the book is when I was new, and I was just coming not too long from the military, and I'm thinking it's paramilitary. So I didn't see anything wrong with exposing what this officer had done and what I had witnessed. Mm -hmm. But as you see and you read in the book, I was retaliated against immediately. Right. But thank God, because I was in the right, God didn't see for that weapon to prosper against me. So it didn't, and I didn't have to go through a third training phase. Okay. And they weren't able to send me to a third training phase like they were trying to. So i got a question for you. Now, it seems like that a lot of people make a transition from the military, and, you know, when they get back home, you know, they become, you know, law enforcement. Now, that seems to happen at a large rate, right? Or, or no, does that not? Because it was my perception that that, you know, that's what happens, that a lot of people, 
you know, MPs and then they get home and they go into law enforcement. And the, and where I'm going with it is I wonder why nobody else kind of stood up or stands up currently for the things that you stand up for. Like, did you, cause you, in your book, you go back forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, over different mm -hmm. things that it was done this way in the military. If it was only done this way, you know, here in law, local law enforcement that we will actually, you know, be safer and, you know, be able to serve the community better. Why do you think that that doesn't happen? Well, I think that there's a lot of military people on the division of police mm -hmm. uh, and take police jobs, civilian jobs, but there's not a lot, actually. It's not. Think. There's oh. not a lot of veterans on. I okay. mean, so we're our own unique subset. So they do have little veteran programs and stuff for us. Mm -hmm. So when you see the 19, like for, for Columbus, there's 1900 sworn. And when we have the little, there's a photograph that we take every year for veterans. They all meet and they take a photograph. Oh, okay. There's probably about a hundred people there. Wow. So okay. it's not that many veterans. And even when it comes to females, there's not that many. Gotcha. But I think the difference between me and them is I'm a Christian and I believe in God. I believe in the power of God and I believe in that he will chastise me if I mistreat people, if, I, if I'm not doing correct by, in his will. Whereas other people don't believe that. And that's how I was raised. And I believe in right and wrong. And so some people, when they get on, they're very, they're indoctrinated. When you're in the academy, I mean, you shoot at black targets. I always, I've told, said this before, the silhouettes mm. are black. And you get the points if you hit the black, no points if you hit the white. Mm. And throughout the, when you're in the academy, you're indoctrinated to believe that the black people are the criminals. They have videos they show you of different um, arrests, but it happens to be all minorities, either Latinos or blacks all the time. Mm -hmm. There's a significant amount of videos they show you of suspects are black or minority. But they do have some white people, but we have a lot more white people getting arrested because there's more white people in the city. But yet and still, you don't see those videos when you're in the academy and you're training. Mm -hmm. And then wow. as time goes on, Year after year, four or five times a year, you're shooting at black targets. So black starts to become the enemy. That's become the bad one because you're always shooting at that. That's the brainwash, right? It is. And when you're in the academy, you have to fight. So they teach, they, they, they don't teach you to fight per se, but they do. But they want you to fight because some people have never been in fights. So they have these padded suits that they put like regular officers in. And they come in the padded suits and you fight the person in the padded suit. One's called the red man, and his suit is red. And the other suit's called the hit man, and his suit is black. So while you're fighting <laughs> the black guy, you see what I'm saying? So these wow. are the kinds of indoctrinations, implicit bias, that actually pushes more implicit bias against African Americans, the things that they do. So we know implicit bias comes from our environment growing up. That's the subconscious thought process we have about certain stereotypes of groups of people. But when you get in the academy, they indoctrinate you even more so into your implicit bias by having those black silhouettes, by having the black hitman, by having showing the videos of only minorities getting arrested or assaulting officers. Makes you think, it makes you fearful. So who's the target? Well, let me ask you this. Uh, how do black officers in training take this? Like, when you know specifically, because you've mentioned when they have someone who sits in for the criminal, they talk about baggy clothes, hat mm -hmm. to the back, bumping rap music. We're talking about someone very specific here. We mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. How do other black officers react to that when they hear that? I'm, you've had to see other people be bothered by this, right? Some black officers 
don't notice or that they notice they don't say anything and they just let it go. Mm-hmm. Most of them let it go. And even to myself, I was getting indoctrinated to the point where one time I was in my cruiser many years ago driving, there was three male blacks walking on the sidewalk. And I looked at them like, what are they doing? And I had to check myself. And I had really? to say, why are you stereotyping these guys because they're black walking on the sidewalk? I really had to tell myself that out loud because I was surprised and disappointed at myself. Now, I am a strong-minded person. I, can only, I, I know that another person that's let, weak-minded would not understand what that just happened at that time, at that moment. They would have probably acted on it and would have pulled up next to them and, and, and tried to consensual encounter with them or whatever to see what they're up to. So I had enough mind to check myself that that was not right. But a lot of them don't. And a lot of black officers go along to get along. Because if you don't, you'll get retaliated against. I've been retaliated against so many, many times throughout my career for standing against the injustice that could going on. But they won't do it because they're worried because they have to feed their families. Right. That's their right. job. So they're not going to go against it, but they see it. I've had other black officers tell me, did you see in that training class? They only had minority videos. So I've had officers tell me that. So they noticed. They noticed. They noticed. I'm not the right. only one that noticed. Well, I'm just the only one X. I remember in reading something that, that you had in, uh, in training as well that, uh, and we were, it was just talking about even, you know, the disparity in the discipline and how one person was being picked on all the time and they was losing, you know, uh, all the, can you tell us that story? Because that, that to me showed real leadership and that's where, you know, this person is a leader. You're talking about in the academy? Yes, in the academy. So we were in the academy and in the academy staff, because a lot of them are not prior military and the sergeant at the time wasn't, he would pick certain people to decide that he want to mistreat. And, like, he would pick on them, so therefore everybody in the class would pick on them. Hmm. And there's no rhyme or reason. Once we get to the academy, we've been through all these different steps to get there. We should be there for training. Right. But they, yeah. they're there. We get there, they try to wash you out and try to cause you extra stress. And if he doesn't like you, this particular sergeant didn't like you for his own personal reason, he didn't like the way you look or whatever, he would personally do things to you. He would have this one, um, it was a male black sergeant, and it was a male black recruit. He would have him washing cars, just doing all kind of stuff, and we would have gig slips. In the military, in basic training, there's gig slips, and you can't lose all your gig slips. I think in the military, you get three. And you, if you, they pull a gig slip because you did something, and they write it down, and they turn it in, you can get in trouble. Okay. In the academy, they have seven. We have seven gig slips. And if they pull your gig slips, they tell you, if we get all your gig slips, we're going to fire you. So he kept messing with this officer, constantly picking on him, and pulled all his gig slips. So I felt bad for him, so I, I told everybody, we need to give a gig slip up for him. So we all gathered the gig slips, and we took them in there and presented them to an officer, and he gave them to the sergeant. So we're back in class. We're like, these are for him. So the, the sergeant comes in class, takes our gig slips, and throws them up in the air. Like, he don't care about them. You know, like, whatever. But make a long story short, the officer, that recruit, did not get fired. He actually is still working today. He's been on 24 years just like See, me. That's beautiful. And, yes. that's, and, and that's what I was thinking to answer Bro's question, because it's not even supported teamwork for you guys, mm-hmm. even in well, training. What I was thinking was it was actually – it, it was trying, he was trying to make sure camaraderie wasn't had. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. not just supported, but right. no, you're not allowed to have mm-hmm. camaraderie. So, and, and since you guys are on the subject of the contrast between military to police, 
a question I had because it's so vivid in the book, and I thank you for that. I thank you for explaining to us the difference in your training when it came to the military yeah, and to sure. the CPD. And I feel, I understand that since you did the time, of course, as you're going through the training, it's always in your head. This is not how it was in the military. Mm -hmm. Did you come into the book, though, with that intention to make it that, to make it, paint it so articulated that we would understand that? Did you start the book like that, or was that something, because I know you wrote the book with E.D. Milligan Driscoll, mm -hmm. correct? Was that an idea you guys both had, or was that you personally that you it, wanted to explain this to people? It was it was both of our ideas, okay. because I think it was important. It's, it's hard being the police and explaining to people that are not in the system, because the yes. system is very confusing for people. And the only thing we could think of was like, what can we do to compare it? Because most people know really what the military is about. Mm -hmm. They've had right. somebody in their family that's been in the military. You've seen a lot of military movies. Right. And the protocol typically is the same. And a lot of the military movies get it right when it comes to the discipline part and the obedience part. And if one person mess up, everybody gets in trouble. So right. that kind of thing is just a common knowledge amongst everyone. So I thought it was very appropriate to compare and contrast those two to help explain what I'm exactly talking about. Right. But just to say that the discipline's harsher, they don't discipline um, in the police department and not have anything to compare it to would have been difficult for, I think, the just general reader to understand. And that's why we did that, to make it an easier um, example. And it did, because it was very clear. And our, our, one of the parts that stood out to me, as you brought up the movies Get It Right, one thing you said was there were, there were drill sergeants in your training, they call them drill sergeants in the police academy? Um, in the police academy, we just we just call them sergeant. Okay, sergeant. And you have referred to some of them taking on that Arlie Emery mm -hmm. attitude, but never actually even serving themselves. Correct. Never actually being a drill sergeant, but personified from the one they saw in a movie. Yeah, they're watching Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> so to thank goodness he going. got it. Thank goodness he got it right then. Or I mean, how does that? <laughs> well, the Full Metal Jacket is 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 what Marines. That's kind of a Marine thing. Yeah. Air Force, we're, yeah. we're softer and gentler. They don't even curse at you. You know, we're not, they're not yelling at you like that. They'll yell at you, but they don't curse. They're definitely not putting their hands on you. So it's just all, uh, especially now. That's because of those test scores. That's right. <laughs> Come on, let's put it out there now. <laughs> they ain't doing all that now. Yeah, those are the smart ones. You know? <laughs> right, right. They ain't doing all that. Now, so after training you still have to put in street time. And that's when you said you saw the first incident yeah. of someone doing an illegal search. The person that was training you decided that you and her were supposed to evacuate the scene. Leave the scene. So, so once you get out of the academy, you have six months of your training in the academy, then you go through your field training. So it's like on-the-job training to show you exactly how to be an officer. Mm -hmm. So you go and you ride, say I ride with you for six weeks, and you teach me the ropes your way. And I ride with you for six weeks, and you teach me the ropes. At that time, there was only two phases. Now there's four total phases. Good. So now there was two then, and so I was on my second phase. So they evaluate you. So you would evaluate me my first phase, and every week there's a, a performance evaluation done on me to see, making sure I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And at the end of that phase, if I pass that phase, I go to the next one. So I passed the first phase with no problem. I went to my second phase. and This would be my final phase. And it was a female black FTO that I was riding with. Okay. And we showed up to, because what happens when you see a cruiser stop a vehicle, another cruiser will pull up to check on them. 
And we'll just say, hey, just check and see if you're okay. We always do that. We always check on other, each other when we stop a car because you never know who you're stopping. So we just, just courtesy to each other as officers, we check on each other. So we did that, and he was searching his car. And I knew it was illegal because the FTO was like, we got to go. We got to get out of here. So we left, and I think there was, like, conversation about what he did. I just can't remember it because it was so long ago. But I just remember her saying, we got to get out of here. So we left, and then she was ended up being off on vacation, and they had to put me with someone. And I was scared that they were going to put me with this officer that searches cars illegally. Mm-hmm. And so at roll call, I said, I don't want to work with Dave because Dave is corrupt, and he searches cars illegally, and I don't want to be on Crooked Cops of Columbus, you know what I'm saying, featured. And everybody's looking at me. He's like, no, I don't. So there's a big, like, talk about it at roll call. He's denying they searched his cars illegally. But I saw you. I said, I saw you do it. <laughs> so I'm like, and so this day, I'm You got like, in trouble for that, right? I did. Yes. <laughs> I did. Well, I didn't actually get in trouble. But. So they tried to retaliate against me. So mm-hmm. this is my end of my second phase, which I would be going out on my own at this point. And I had no negative marks okay. at all. And so when this, she left for frigation, I was at the very end. And so when she came back, they're telling all this stuff happened. And then when it's time for me to go to my probationary period, which is a separate area, and I'm on my own, the guy that's in charge of all the recruits, he, he calls me and tells me, hey, they're trying to send you to a third phase. And if they sent you to a third phase, that means either they're trying to get rid of you or you didn't do well in your other two phases and mm. they want to get rid of you. And they said you were unsafe. And on a run that we had where this lady said somebody came through her back door. So me and another officer went to the front and some officers went to the back. And when she came downstairs and opened the door, we went inside. They said I stood in front of the door, so I had officer safety issues, and they wanted to send me to another phase. Now, mind you, whole six weeks before, whole six weeks, almost six weeks, the second phase, no officer safety issues. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden I say about this officer being corrupt and crooked, now I have officer safety issues. So I went to that FTO coordinator and I told him that this is retaliation and this is why, because I said these things. And he said, well, if you don't hear from me, go on to your probation. I didn't hear from him. So I went on to my probation and I've been working ever since. That's beautiful. Yeah. So let me ask you about the, the mindset. So coming in, just coming out of the academy and you're coming in, you you know, you get your two, six weeks and everything. I remember reading some things about the conditioning of the mind that they give you at that point for you and your families to let you know, you know, that this is going to be difficult and it's going to be, you're going to be different and all this kind of stuff. How, how does, how does that fit into, you know, that time frame when you're just coming out of the academy and you're trying to get on the beat and you're trying to, you know, fit in with other officers and stuff? Was that something that, that you took? I mean, evidently you didn't go with what they said, but I, I would imagine that the average person does. They kind of say that that's just how it's going to be. This is how we got to adjust to, you know, police life. Mm-hmm. So they tell you in the academy that mm-hmm. they'll ask you who's all married. And everybody raise your hand who's married. And then they'll say, okay, half of y'all put your hands down. You guys will be divorced before da-da-da-da. <clears throat> so they'll say so much percentage will be divorced before you retire, you know, before you retire or whatever. They tell your families, they have a family night where they talk to your families they're not going to want to, when they, they don't want to go and socialize, they want to sit with their back to the door. They don't want to sit with their back to the door. They're always going to be looking around. This is how we change. So they tell you how you're going to be. They tell your family that too, They right? tell your family, yes, how they're going to be. So don't worry. This is just normal. They're not going to lose friends. They're not going to be the same. They tell you they're going to be like um, 
they're going to withdraw from everyone. I mean, they tell you all these different things that they expect that you will be because you are a cop now, that you'll change because of what you deal with, I guess, every day. But instead of giving us stuff to prevent us from changing, giving us resources and things like that, the expectation is you will change. They want you to change. They they making, you. They're making yes. the environment toxic in your mind yeah. before yes. you even get to anything Correct. negative. So not yeah. only is it's okay to be divorced, it's a joke. How many times have you been married? Oh, three times. You know, it's, it's a joke. It's normal to be divorced two to three times, and it's okay. It's like what it is. It's like a joke about it. They think it's funny. <laughs> wow. That's just what it is. Yes. So would it be, I, I guess I imagine, with as many hours as you guys put in, and I know that I've seen, I've been in bars before where after the shift, cops are coming in together. They're spending time together after work. Mm -hmm. Do they try to separate you from the family? Because the way you sound is like they're already preparing you that you're going to be with us and not them. Do they try to? They don't try to separate you from the family, but what they're telling you is that what happens is, they call them donut dollies, that when we're working third shift and we go to United Dairy Farmer to get a donut, we meet the lady that's working behind this, the counter and the guys date the lady behind the counter and cheats on their wife. That's the kind of stuff they're, they're trying to say that happens. And it's a normal thing. So it's accepted behavior instead of something that'd be shunned. You know, like people would shun that. Like you're cheating on your wife, that's not good. But not in our field, it's not that way. It's Amazing. Yeah, it is. It's so funny because, you know, when I read a lot of the different things in the book, when I got to this part here, it really rang in my mind and my heart. You start talking about wellness and, you know, if they were giving you healthy tools to help you mm -hmm. to how you should be able to mm -hmm. adapt. What, what, what was your views there on the wellness that, that, that you thought that they could have uh, helped you? Uh, there, there are so many different things I think about wellness that they mm -hmm. can help. I mean, we have so many different avenues that they can do to help us be well, but they haven't done it. I mean, I give an example about police-involved shootings, whereas if I'm involved in a shooting, that means somebody's trying to take my life. If I'm shooting at you, it's deadly force. That's what that is. I'm taking your life or you taking my life, one or the other. Right. And so that's a traumatic incident. And you're required after that to go see a psychiatrist only one time. One time. And when you go to that one time, that psychiatrist is saying, okay, how you feel about what you did, how you feel about almost getting killed, how you feel about it. And if you don't say the right things, then he's saying, well, I don't think you should go back to work. But if you say the right things, you go back to work. But if you don't go back to work, then everybody knows you have a problem, right? So they always say the right things. Mm. So that PTSD never gets resolved. And that's the reason why you have a lot more of those same people that have gotten one shooting and then multiple shootings, four shootings, and took life many a times over where they have a lot of use of forces afterwards or a lot of citizen complaints because they're still dealing with that very first shooting because mm. there's no mandatory canceling. We don't have that. They only make them go one time. And one time is not enough to resolve an issue if you have one and because you're too embarrassed to say that I need help. And that's what happens. As an activist, I know you've heard <laughs> it because we've been saying it for a while now. Um, the police are not handled to deal with a mental health situation. They're just not. When I hear you talk, not only are they not equipped or trained to deal with a mental health situation, you guys aren't even getting your own mental health right. taken care of. Correct. So how can we expect those who are not being treated properly to treat 
others properly. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So when you are in training, I know we had got past training, but when you're in training, to what level is mental health even talked about? Where is that in training at all? I don't know now, but I do know that when I was there, I don't remember anything mental health wise. Are you talking about for us really? as officers? Well, for general public, when you're coming out to deal with someone, we know now. Right. We know now that when a call is made to net care and someone says, please send a squad, I would like to see someone right now. I'm having a mental health crisis. I'm known to have schizophrenia. That person then thinks a, a squad call, or a, a medic squad is coming to pick them up to Somebody take them back to net care. Right. When they open the door, there's five <laughs> cops standing at the door. And the first thing they do to this schizophrenic person is grab their wrist. That's not proper training mental health wise. At all. Right it, now, they have um, crisis intervention training for everybody in the mm-hmm. training, recruit, clinic, rec- recruit class. But we are not mental health professionals. That's right. I have a social work degree. I'm a licensed social worker as well. And I have four years for that degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just get like a six-week class. Yeah. Right. That's still, there's so many different disorders out there, mental health disorders that vary, that's, that, come, that manifest itself in different ways. That we don't know how to deal with it. So we need to defund the police and take what we were spending money on officers going to mental health calls and have a social service agency doing that. That's what we need to do. We are not equipped for that. I don't care. Six weeks of training is just not enough for all the different kinds of disorders that are out there. We're just not experts in it. And that's what you need dealing with those people. Unless there's some kind of knife or gun involved in that crisis, if it's just a general mental health crisis they're in, let the professionals deal with it. That's what needs to happen. It's ridiculous. Yeah, can you break down the defunding part for us again? And I think why I would like to know, because it's interesting to me that you use the term defunding. Right, because as an officer. Everybody usually goes crazy when you say exactly. defund the police. You so know? you intrigued me, too, when you said that. Well, for me, defunding means just reallocating monies that we use for certain things. Makes sense. To social service agencies. Like Narcan, we, when there's overdoses, we have Narcan, we respond and we give the Narcan to the person that's overdosed. Mm-hmm. But why are we doing that? Why not take the money and give it to a social service agency that could be around the clock and have a Narcan van that they respond to these overdoses that takes it out of the, the police hands? Right. What's happening is we're getting, anytime they want something done, they say, let the police do it, let the police do it, let the police do it. We have been overwhelmed with things that we do that are not police-related that should be done by another agency. Mm-hmm. And so we can't get to the basis of policing anymore because we're too busy going to the sub to get in a defibrillator so we can use it to, for somebody in cardiac arrest. That's not our job. Right. So that would definitely be an advantage because by reallocating the funds, that would actually give you more time to police. Correct. Got yep. it. I That's understand. exactly right. Even to where little neighbor disputes, we get called on the craziest stuff. A neighbor called because this person, their neighbor is lawn clippings from cutting the grass is going on their lawn. That kind of stuff should not be something we respond to. Have a security element that responds to little neighbor disputes that doesn't result in violence or anything like that. I don't understand that. I mean, why would you even be sent on that call? If the because they call, maybe they call. It's, it's maybe it's escalating. Maybe no. it's escalating, and they're no. They uh-huh. call us. That's who they call. They call us. <laughs> hmm. 
And that, and, and the dispatcher literally says, we're just going to send someone out. They don't say, well, ma'am. I if, mean, even if you insist on a cruiser, we have to send a cruiser out. That's what we do. If I have a wild animal on my doorstep, they won't send the police to help me. I've called them because we've had, we've tried to figure out how to animal control. They tell us, they tell us, call animal control. We can't do anything for you. So how does grass clippings constitute an actual cruiser? Because they are saying it's a dispute with their neighbor. Okay. And they want a report filed, right? They either want to, they want to report sometimes. Even if it's not even a crime, when they insist on a report, we got to give it to them. So there's a lot of things that we don't need to handle that they can have, like, a security company to go out and be the mediator. We don't have to be right. out there for certain calls, but we are out there for everything. Going back to you being a 24-year activist, like I said, when do you feel, because you've said that you never even thought of activism before being in the CPD. Did the CPD make you an activist? Is yes. that what happened? Yeah. Yes. When would you say your first official time, besides actually uh, busting out Dave, and says Dave did it and you saw it, when would be your first official report that you had to file in the name of civil rights violation or... Are you talking about just official report like an EEO violation? Yes. And as a matter of fact, can we just start with you explaining to us what is an EEO? Well, it's Equal Employment Opportunity, and it's, it's a complaint that we file inside if we're feeling we're discriminated against mm-hmm. based on our race, sex, gender. Um, you said sex already. And sexual orientation. Um, so you, you fill out, you file this, this EEO complaint against the person. So I filed one against uh, my sergeant in 2000. Well, I started in 2001 getting mistreated in the, when I worked in training, and I think I filed my EEO in 2003. Okay. So that was my first official EEO that I filed, but since then I've filed several more So because I constantly try to fight them when they mistreat me. And I've even filed third-party complaints. If I see them mistreating someone else, I'll file on their behalf as well. Um, I believe that I've always been an activist, just know it was. I was an activist. When I was growing up, I was always for the underdog, always for people that were the ones that they picked on. I didn't like that. So I've always stood up for people. Even in the academy, I stood up for that officer. Right. And that right. sergeant was picking on him. Right. So, and so I've always been for an activist for other people and an advocate for other people. Okay. I just didn't consider myself a true activist until the last few years, you know. Well, everybody might not know that you also uh, are thought to be like the MLK, the new <laughs> MLK, uh, you know, just in your activism because oh. the change that you're going for is going to affect people to come after you. And I think that's what you said. You definitely wanted to influence and do mm-hmm. that for the mm-hmm. people who's coming next. Yeah, I do want to influence um, to help the people that's coming next because I'm done. I can leave today and be just fine with my life. But I want to see changes for the people that's coming after me, the people that's there, because no one should be able to have to deal with a toxic environment like the division of police. It's toxic inside, and as long as it's toxic inside, it's going to continue to be toxic dealing with the people on the outside. You can't fix the outside if you don't fix the inside. I've asked you, I've asked you before, how is it that me and him, my brother, how are we supposed to expect we're safe? When we go on the streets, when the way that you've written in this book, you're not safe inside. You can be a cop. You can be a black man, black woman, and you are just as unsafe. 
Can you talk about some of the things that you've witnessed when it comes to the actual treatment of other officers from your own, I guess, brethren? I don't even want to call them brethren because you don't seem like y'all are a family at all. So from the fellow boys in blue that are all supposed to stay together, how, how do they treat you inside? What is it like? It's um, unfair. They treat us unfair. They don't give us, I even tell you the chief of police at the time, which he just recently got demoted, he passed me up on two jobs that I should have gotten hmm. Hmm. for some for male whites that's less qualified than me. My resume, I have five degrees. The law degree is the last one that I received. And the reason why I had to get five degrees is because I've been denied so many opportunities inside of training opportunities. There's this certain classes that leaderships go to, called mm-hmm. Elk, different big name Expensive classes that they allow people to go to every year. But I've been denied twice for that. And those classes, when you leave there and you want to become chief somewhere, they're looking for those classes on your resume. But I've been denied those. I'm the highest ranking black female officer in the history of the division. I am the only black female lieutenant currently. But yet and still, they still deny me these classes, when I see people of lower rank going to these classes. So I said to myself, get this resume. Get all the degrees you can get. So when you put your resume against anybody on the eighth floor, which mm-hmm. are the highest up, even to the chief, it'll outshine them all. So I accomplished that. My resume outshines anybody's resume on the whole division of police. Not only am I a veteran, I have two bachelor's, associate's degree, a, a master's degree, and a law degree. What? Amen. Do you know what I'm saying? That's so you want to deny me, but God got another plan. So right. and you all paid for it too. So it's not like it came out of my pocket. They paid for my degrees. And I went back to school and kept getting it and getting my stuff so that when it came down time to it, if I was to go anywhere in the country and my resume was up against their resume, my five degrees to their little pelt school. Yeah. And their one degree, yeah. it's gonna outweigh it every time. That's what gives you the courage to speak up against against this disparity. Uh, Mm -hmm. Me and him had talked slightly and there's a couple situations directly where you witnessed, um, you know, some things happen to where I remember in one that I was reading a gentleman would get fired if he was a black officer. And but if it was a white officer doing even, you know, more serious uh, Mm -hmm. things that they would just get slapped on the wrist. Yeah. Kevin Morgan is his lawsuit is still pending right now. His name is Kevin Morgan. He's a male black. He was working special duty, and the lady accused him of not um, showing up for a shift. Now, special duty is a job you might see us at Kroger's or at the nightclub. Those places of business are actually paying us to be there. It's not division paying us. So we're working for Kroger's. We're working for the nightclub. Extra duty. We call it special duty. So he's working, supposed to work at this apartment complex, and the lady said he wasn't showing up a couple of days. So they charged him, and um, department charged him, and then fired him. But then you had two sergeants, two male white sergeants. They made the news. They weren't coming to work. In order for us to be off, we had to put a vacation slip in. They weren't putting vacation slips in. They just wouldn't show them to work. So to the tune of like tens of thousands of dollars. Okay, I remember. That they this. missed work mm-hmm. without having slips put in. Instead of firing them. They just gave them 240 hours. They didn't even demote them or anything. They're actively working right now. They're sergeants still, and they work every day. 
Now, when you said 200, how many? How many 240 hours? hours of suspension. I don't know if that's going to come clear for everybody, especially if they haven't read the book. Right. When you say they got 240 hours, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be on the job. No, they were just, these people, these two sergeants were suspended for 240 hours. So okay. how many weeks is that? One, two, three, four, five, five six, six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks without pay. Okay. And then they could, came back. Could they use their vacation time? On, no, on not that, this one. Not on that particular Okay. One. They didn't use their vacation that, on this I think that's where Broke was going. That's You're exactly where I was going. Leave forfeiture. Leave forfeiture. Yes. Yeah, they didn't get leave forfeiture on it because it was 240, but they didn't get fired. Yeah. Kevin is still fighting for his job. Wow. And this is like six years later. Six years later. He lost his home. Oh, he lost all, all kinds of stuff. So leave forfeiture is, so when you get in trouble as an officer and your department will charge, you can get suspended. So the chief can give you a suspension. And he can say, hey, we're going to give you 32 hours of suspension. Instead of having you to actually take those 32 hours off where you don't get paid, he can offer you leave forfeiture. Okay. Leave forfeiture basically saying that you take 32 hours out of your time bank. So we get so much vacation every year and it rolls over. So we build up vacation. So they just take the 32 hours out of your bank and you continue to work. You don't lose any pay. Just the 32 hours is gone out your bank. And that leave forfeiture option allows the chief to keep the whole incident in-house to where it doesn't go across the street to the safety director. So he doesn't even know what went down. And what are some of the things that would qualify for you being able to take the leave forfeiture? There's not necessarily anything that qualifies you. It's up to the chief if he wants to offer it. Oh, okay. So, so the chief is the one that decides if he's going to offer leave forfeiture. So what are some of the things that you know that people have taken it? They have gotten leave forfeiture for uses of force. Like um, we had one incident where a guy robbed some, um, took some shoplifted from CVS, and they were looking for the officers were looking for him, the citizen, and they wanted to go in this man's backyard. So they asked the homeowner, "Can we go in your backyard to look for someone?" Mm -hmm. Homeowner said, "No, you can't." So the officer slapped him across the fence because he was standing opposite the fence, and so he took his, took his hand and slapped him. Yeah. And they went in his yard anyway. Those officers got like 32 hours of leave forfeiture. They didn't even get suspended. They wow. slapped the guy. So they came into work the next day. And yes, on they came into work the next day. They were on the same street. Yes. Lost same a little beat. bit of vacation, PTO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all they did. They lost wow. vacation time, but they didn't get suspended. They didn't fill it. So to me, even raising a kid or even my dogs, if you don't feel the consequence, it doesn't work. You got to feel right. it. So when you say a lack of accountability, that's what it is. You got people that slept with prostitutes. You've got people that committed crimes, and they got leave forfeiture. Wow. In my book, I talk about all the different things. It was just examples of some of the things. A lot of people have asked me, how has she managed to become a lieutenant? With everything that she's gone through, with right. all the people who are targeting her, how does she get that? How do they promote her? That's what they've always asked. How does she get that promotion? They didn't have a choice uh -huh. because with our promotions up to commander, you take a test. Right on. So when I hit sergeant, I scored number one out of everybody, 100 and some people. Number one. So I studied and studied and studied, and I scored number one. And then I also did well on the lieutenant's test. So that's why I'm a lieutenant, because can I, I studied. Can I ask you a question? And um, so if anybody was to tell me they don't like the way that you advanced within uh, the police department, that means that they didn't like that you were smarter than them. That's it. There you go. Okay, I got it. I just <laughs> there was no... To, well, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to clear that up because, I mean, the way that That's I... very applicable. There's four me. tests that you have to take for mm -hmm. sergeants, four different tests, okay. and then they take your score, add them all up, 
and add your seniority points, and there you go. And you got to beat everybody else. You got to score high enough to even get promoted. It's not everybody gets promoted. Right. So you got to score high enough. So I gave it to where I went. Sergeant, they didn't give a choice but to promote me because I was number one. They couldn't promote anybody else. Because on paper, apparently, you are exactly the cop they want. Yes. You're yes. the perfect cop. Yes. On paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So each position, like Sergeant, you got to take four tests. You got to take two multiple choice tests. Mm-hmm. One's open book and one's closed book. You have to take a written where they you have to write scenarios out. And then you have to do an oral board where they call people from out of town, come in, and you have scenarios. You have to role play. And after you do all four of those, they, te- they score all of them separately. And then depending on your score, they rank you. Okay. And that's how you figure out which, where you are in the ranking. So now next step would be for you would end up being a commander position. Commander. Correct? In this past test, I scored eight under the commander's list. Really? Mm-hmm. So are you? I don't know. Depending on how many people leave. Oh, okay. Because yeah, you just don't get promoted. It's got to be a vacancy. Right. Understood. Got you. It's only certain amount and of And not only have I promoted myself in a sense of studying and doing what I need to do to get that, to get the promotion, mm-hmm. I've helped 10 other minorities get promoted as well. That's, that's, that is, that is gigantic. And well. I was going to bring that up and said, and say, and I talked to brother on the way here, man, we were talking about the, uh, the study groups that you had in order to help other people through mm-hmm. that sergeant's test. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you stop doing it, you see the numbers decreased yes. on those that were getting put in. So mm-hmm. what do you think? How can, how do you support that continuing, even if you can't be a part of it? I mean, is it just nobody else cares or is it? I think it's um, kind of people are disheartened because they feel that the promotional process is um, is rigged mm-hmm. because a lot of agencies outside of the division, they have outside agencies doing their testing process. Well, we don't. We use internal SMEs, which we call them subject matter experts. So they might come to you and say, hey, what do you want to think we should put on the test? And, and the people inside the division knows what's on the test before the test is given. Wow. So they're supposed to start, they sign this form and say they won't tell anybody what's on the test. But who's to say they're not? Right. We, as people that's in the division, we feel that they've told people who's, what's on the test. We feel that it's rigged. So for wow. me to get number one, it's because I studied. We could still get past the test, but we have to actually study for it. Right. There's some people we feel that don't have to study because they already know the answers. Because hmm. the people that's making up the test are inside and that they're friends with. So it's rigged. So we kind of get discouraged about taking it, but it we can still take it and pass it and do well. We just right. have to work extra hard at it. It's hard competing against someone that already has a head start. It's not right. even playing field it's at all. It's not even. So that's a discouraging thing. But we get promoted. It's not that many of us, but we do. And so when I, I helped them study, we studied hard. Every week I met a group, five groups a week, one hour each each group. It was just a lot for me. That's why I stopped. It was too much. I just can't do it by myself. And I told them they need to reach back. So some of them are actually helping others that's that beautiful. I've helped. So that's hopefully it'll continue on. Pay it forward. That's, yes. That's beautiful. You've also been an advocate for some of those fellow police officers, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Um, the whole thing that when they got came after me in 2017 was because this female black, she was um, having problems with her white sergeant. He was making her do things that he wasn't making any other white officers do. 
Um, we have subpoenas that come in to subpoenas all the court, and it'd be a large stack of them because we all got to go to court on dark cases. And what they do normally, they all split, everybody's working in the area, they split them up, and they got to look up the assignments of each of the officers so they can send them. Okay. Well, he was trying to make her do the whole stack herself, and that mm. never, ever happened. And that was just the last straw for her. He had been doing many things to her that she felt was treating her differently than the rest of the white officers there. So she came to me. Well, she first went to a commander and complained on him. The commander didn't do anything about it. So I, she called me. And make a long story short, they retaliated against her. But in the process, the internal affairs commander came down to her and told her that her complaint wasn't going, told him, the sergeant that discriminated against her, that he, don't worry about your complaining. It's got to go through me. It's not going anywhere. And basically said he, she's going to take me out, blah, blah, blah. So all these different things. And then they came after me. But that was me advocating for her. She filed an EEO complaint. And I all was about to she, ask you that. Yeah, she, I helped her file an EEO complaint. I got her in touch with a lawyer and all these things. But they still retaliated against her. She still got a written reprimand because it's all, when they, when you could accuse someone of violating the EEO law, mm-hmm. being racist, they close ranks. And they all are in cahoots. They all, they don't like it. They hate it. Even though it's true, they just don't, they don't like to be called racist, right. so they close rank. And if you, even though they don't have anything to do with it, they'll side with them. They'll side together to make you look crazy. And just, it's just really bad. Well, now, can those EEO reports, can they just disappear? Can someone get rid of them? How do, so what's the process there? The Internal Affairs investigates them. Okay. And they, are, they never sustain them, typically. It's very well. rare that they say they're guilty of the EEO. They okay. don't ever want to call, say they're guilty because I guess they're scared of liability. Can you dispute that? There's, you can, but the people that you're disputing it with. Still are, them. Are, is it still them? <laughs> never, never mind. <laughs> it's still them. It's all a closed system. It's still yeah. them. So it's just not a fair thing. That's why we advocated for having an independent person right. to be our EEO right. compliance officer in last 2019. Mm-hmm. The mayor hired her. Me and the pastors got together and gave the mayor seven expectations, and one of those was our EEO compliance, an independent person that we can go to to complain about EEO discrimination. And he hired her in 2019. So that has been done, and she is making a difference. So you do see a significant change? I see a difference in the sense of they, she's not one of them. She's, okay. not, in, she's not in the division. So it deters things, I think. Okay. It deters things. So I've seen a big difference just having her That's good. there. Do you, I don't know if you have knowledge to it, but have they increased since she started? When I spoke to her, she said they, that she wasn't expecting so much work. She's really? getting a lot. Really? Yes. Wow. Well, let me ask you this question. Since before her, since before, it kind of sounds like uh, you file an EEO complaint. Not a big deal. It, it doesn't sound it like was it's a big deal to them, but not in your favor. Okay. It's a big deal. Because they come after you, Uh-oh. but it's it. But they don't. They never investigate it right, and they always say it's not. It's not sustained. They always found. They never found them guilty. Put it that way. Now, what I guess I wonder, because I know you have filed plenty of EEO mm-hmm. complaints. If you are the type of officer, just in your opinion, if you're the type of officer who has never filed an EEO complaint, does that mean you've never seen any fracturing? of duty is that what that means or no it just means that you 
are probably afraid to file it because it's a taboo to file it. Once you file one, mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, she files EEOs. They they kind of you don't people don't talk to you. Whistleblower type thing. Yes, <laughs> basically what it is. You get response like a whistle. People don't talk to you. They retaliate against you. I mean. It's, it's really, really crazy. Shouldn't that be something that people don't know you filed? I don't understand. They Why? <laughs> Good point. That can get you hurt. Right. Why would this be? Why would it even be up to discussion that this should not be anonymous? Obviously. Come on. I know, but that's just how it is. And they they do not like it. And they retaliate. There's no help now with the EEO compliance Officer, there's more faith into the system that we at least can go to her, and she's not a buddy with this person here. Okay. But okay. they are really bad. I mean, it's, it's really hard to explain because it's such a massive, and it's so unbelievable. You wouldn't think officers that are supposed to be just and fair are like this, but they're really bad. They're, they're bad, and you guys know that because you're right. in the community, and you know how bad they are. Right. Well, it's it's funny because I I learned that every time that uh, an officer searched my vehicle, it was a legal search. Mm-hmm. Every time. That was the call I called every, you on that very every first night. time. Every time, because I was thinking, every time I'm in the back seat. Yeah. Every time. But is it consensual? That, you mean did I say yes? Did they ask you, and did you say yes? Yes. But to both of them, they asked you. I can remember. I can remember specifically. Um, one they asked me, and one I didn't get asked. But I thought if I gave my consent, maybe maybe I read it wrong. So no, you're so right. If you fine. gave your consent, uh-huh. and you were in the back of that cruiser, that's illegal. Okay, exactly. They should have had you there so you can limit that. I had search. to be in six right. within six that's feet, right? Well, not necessarily within six feet. Within a way that you can say, "I don't want you." I can terminate that. that I can terminate at any time. At any time. That's okay. a consensual search. Right. Okay. Well, you no, gave I, consent. That means you can withdraw consent. And well, I was still taken to. The I didn't know the withdrawal was even possible. Once I had consent, no idea yes. that. So what you're saying is. If they get to a personal belonging of someone else's, I can tell them yes. that's not mine. You are not allowed to search that. Correct. Or even your own. You can right. change your mind and say, I don't, I don't want you searching that box back there. I want to make sure it's clear to your, your listeners that if an officer is asking you a question, mm-hmm. if they're asking you a question, that means you can say no. We are arrogant. We think we are better than everybody else. We are elitists. We are not going to ask you permission for anything. We are not going to be subservient to you in any means, matter, shape, or form unless we have to be. And the reason why we're asking you is because we have to ask you. If I ain't got to ask you to search your car, I'm not going to ask you. I'm just going to do it. If I want you to come out the car, I'm going to take you out the car. If I ask you, do you mind if I search you? Do you know how many times officers ask people, do you mind if I search you? Do you have no drugs on you, do you? They would mm-hmm. know. Every time. Do you mind if I search you? No, you can search me. And they have drugs on them. Why would you let an officer search you if you have drugs on you? And people are going to say, well, if I say no, he's going to search me anyway. Well, he'll find the drugs if you say yes, too. So what, what, do you, what do you have to lose? And if the officer says, what are you trying to hide? Officer, what do I have to prove? Stop letting these officers search you. Stop letting these officers Search your cars. Stop it. Even if you don't have anything on you, you don't have to allow that to happen. You're allowing him to, them to violate your constitutional rights. 
And that sometimes when they're not violating you, you're getting permission just to search you for what reason? You don't have to submit to a search. If you're not doing anything wrong, or even if you're doing anything wrong, you don't have to submit. Say no. Well, I hate to say it. I hate to say it because we, just like police, want to get home that night. And we're seeing it. The more that you say no, we have officers that that increases their aggression. Increase their aggression to do what? We just saw the other day, uh, uh, I believe, uh, I'm not sure if he was Air Force. He's military, but he didn't want to get out of the car. He told them, I'm in fear for my life, and they began macing him. But what, to, what was the reason that he needed, they wanted him to get out of the car? Now, the officers can make you get out of the car on a traffic stop. The law, the law says they can't. Right. So I'm not talking about things that the officers can do. I'm talking about things that they're asking you permission to do. I do understand that. And There's a difference. Yes. And what about the statements? Oh, yes. And, and people, <laughs> people talk about self-incrimination. And you, you asked me this statement off the record, uh, this question off the record about uh, Jason Mead and why he isn't given a statement. Well, as officers, when we're under criminal investigation, we have the same rights as any other citizen. And I don't know if you guys remember Dave Chappelle. He used to have this, this one show. He's talking about pleading the fifth. Mm -hmm. He's like, I plead one, two, three, four, five, the fifth. Yep. <laughs> right. You remember that? Yep. Because you have the right to plead the fifth, just like Jason Meade, just like any other officer. We have the Fifth Amendment protection when it's a criminal investigation to not self-incriminate ourselves so we don't have to make a statement. Same thing with you guys. So when people are out with the police and they tell you, if you find yourself saying, the officer saying to you, you got a right to remain silent, then remain silent. What is the problem? People run in their mouths when they don't need to. Get you a lawyer, shut your mouth. Anything that you say can and will be used against you, and they use it. When you're in back of the cruiser, all that's tape recorded. So all your little excited utterance, things that you're saying, I didn't mean to punch you in the nose, that can be used against you. <laughs> stop talking. Yeah, please stop talk talking. talk too much. Plead the fifth. And everything's recorded nowadays. So right. if the officer, you say, no, I don't want you searching my car, and they decide to do it anyway, that's a lawsuit right there. They violated your rights. Just remember, stop talking so much. You have the right to remain silent. Be silent. Right. Right, right to they, remain they silent. They might still try to keep talking to you, but as soon as you lawyer up, they have to shut up and even stop asking you questions. Yes. At that point. Good point. I know that's what we say, lawyer. Yeah, lawyer. We just say lawyer. lawyer. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got to ask a question. As an activist, as a, would you consider yourself a BLM activist? Or do you look at activism from your side differently than we do? I think that I, I think I am a Black Lives Matter activist. Are you? I believe we're on the same accord. I believe that the police aren't, they're mistreating the black community. I believe they treat, mistreat poor community. Like I tell people, I am from West Virginia. I grew up in poverty. So people that are poor, I have a special place in my heart for. I have family members that have mental health issues. So people that have mental health issues, I have a special place in my heart for those people. Black people, I'm black. And I have a special place in my heart for those black people. So for me, any mistreatment of those populations bothers me to my core, because that is me. So I'm a Black Lives Matter protester, activist. I am a poor people's activist. I am all of that. I'm a champion for mental health. So All within the House of Blue Lives Matter. I don't have a House of Blue Lives Matter. No, I mean downtown Columbus, Columbus, Ohio. I mean, I'm saying I don't believe there's a such thing. There's no such thing as blue lives. 
They're, they're not in danger. There's nothing going on with them. They are the problem, and they need to straighten up, and somebody needs to straighten them up. They made blue lives just so they can counter black lives. Even though we have posters up in the Blue Lives Matter in our building, which is inappropriate, but we have it there. The fact is that citizens made that up. The blue line of silence is real. It used to be the rule of silence used to be a bad thing. Right. Now they turned it into something good. And still to this day, we have a cover of culture. And as you see now, they don't even want to have those five officers that spout the lawsuit Mm -hmm. to not have to tell on other officers. Right. And what bothers me is three of those are African-American officers. Wow. Wow. That's heavy. What, is it, what does it feel like in your opinion? Are they showing out for their white counterparts? Is that why? What is the benefit to these black officers taking this side? Acceptance. They're accepted by the majority. Some of them are indoctrinated, and they don't realize they're indoctrinated to believe their own people are the criminals, and they don't understand the whole gist of it. Some of them doing it to get along, to go along, to get along. But what, what I'm, I'm here to tell everyone that the black community, your thoughts, what you've been believing all these years, is real. It's not, not untrue. That's real. They, they feel this way about our black men, about our black community. We are over-policed. There's occupation when it comes. We are occupying like a military would occupy a country, we are occupying the black community unjustly. We are mistreating people. That's what the police are doing, not just here in Columbus. This is a system problem. It's a whole policing problem. We have good officers, individual officers on our division, black and white, male, female. But it's the system that we're a part of is what the problem is, and that's why when they shoot unarmed black men across the country, it looks the same because it's the whole same system. Right. How right. they develop us, how they make us believe who is our enemy. That's why I'm for demilitarization of the police department. We don't need high power rifles. We don't need tactical gear. We don't need all the military gear because we don't even respect the power that comes with it. Right. And when you start, where's who's our enemy? In the military, I knew who our enemy was. They were overseas. We knew who our enemies were. And so the people on base that we policed, they weren't looked at as enemies because we knew we our identified enemy was. Right. Here, where's our enemy? Who is the enemy? Us. So I'm just saying, so we're military-minded, and we're trying to be military. we got all these military weapons. So who is our, who is our enemy? Wow. Who have they identified as the enemy? That black it's silhouette. The it's the community. And it's that not just the black silhouette. community, but it's, it's the, community. the poor community. You're right. Yeah, you community. are right. Yeah. You're right. And okay, you know what? That's another perspective that I, I love hearing from you because not only there's so many perspectives I love hearing from you, but your honesty, your realism, and the fact that you don't even sway on the fact that you are CPD. You say we do this. We, we. are wrong. You take responsibility for the fact that this is people I've been with for a long These are time. people that I've been with for a long time. And like I said, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, not right. on CPD. Right. This is my personal opinion from my experiences, things that I have lived and witnessed, things I have examples of. So I put names in the book because they will say I'm lying. Since I wrote the book, they put five investigations on me. Five. Since I wrote the book. But they can't say I'm lying when I got names in the book. 
No, that's right. These people are still working there, and they're so mad. Yeah. So right now, I got deputy chiefs coming after me because they're mad at me for this book. But when I have God on my side, I don't care what, what you do. You wow. keep coming, but I'm going to keep telling the story, keep exposing them, and then maybe somebody will see it and change it because the system of policing is corrupt. Right. And then when you have the leaders that fall in line with that system, there's nobody winning in that. Man, so so what does what does uh, reform? I mean, what do you, what does reform look like to you? I remember reading uh, Seven Expectations, and how that all came about. What 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 does reform look like? Reform looks like when we start taking an officer off of Bethel Road, putting him on Mount Vernon, and he treats him the same. That's what reform looks like. Reform looks like accountability at the top when you don't have deputy chiefs that have lifelong appointments so they don't ever have to say they're sorry because they, they once you get that position, you never go anywhere. So right. they are controlling everybody underneath them. To me, you put term limits and you say, deputy chiefs, you got five years. And in five years, these are the measurements that we're looking for. If these measurements are not met, then you got to go. I guarantee you, his whole chain will get some act right because his job depends on it. Right now, nobody's job depends on it. They can act a fool and have their people acting a fool, no accountability, and no one's job depends on it. You already know the union's going to fight for people's jobs. The deputy chiefs aren't in the unions, but they're lifetime appointments. But we made their jobs. They're the second-hand command. If you don't know, we got the chief, and then we got six deputy chiefs. Yeah. They're very powerful. Those deputy chief's jobs depended on how their people treat the citizens. That'll make the difference in the world because they'll make well, sure they act. Well, right. for that, aren't we dependent on Andrew Ginther, our mayor? Aren't we dependent on him putting the proper chief in place to begin with? Right, but it's not even just the chief. We're always worried about the chief. The chief is one. He only sees so many of the discipline things that come up. He only sees so many. Mm -hmm. The deputy chiefs make a lot of the decisions mm. when it comes to discipline. The chief don't even see. And then some people talk about the safety director. Safety director don't even work in the division. So he is totally disconnected in a sense. He doesn't know what every day goes on. And the chief that leave forfeiture keeps everything in house. Mm. So the safety director don't ever see it. That's how it fits in. So what you just explained is, because activists ask me constantly, we know they just did something. They're still on the street. That's why. That's why. Because even though supposedly they're being punished, pretty much they're losing holiday pay. Or no PTO. Store vacation. Store vacation. Vacation time. Store vacation time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Because when you do something, when you reach across the fence and slap someone, that creates fear. That creates fear. That's why we have issues with the police. And then to see you on our block the very next day means you're untouchable. But you got to remember, too, how they do it. Once something happens, they have to do an investigation. Then it has to go through the chain. And they have to go through, if they have the department charge them, it's got to go to the chief hearing. So there's a lot of different steps before you can even discipline an officer. Um, the most egregious things that they do, they can relieve them and put them on desk duty. But it just depends on who you are, too part of that it's just a whole That's system needs to be changed yes right? it has to be a whole change in the system top down we need new leadership we need the way we train needs to be different the way we hire needs to be different the way we promote 
All these things need to change. And we just, the mayor, people might not like him, but he's the first one that I've seen to go against the FOP and actually call out systemic racism inside the division. He knows there's a problem. So hopefully he will do more to change things. But the rest of the ones we had, Mitch Brown, Mayor Coleman, Chief Jackson, yep. complicit. And that's something that you brought up in your book that I thought was excellent. So for a very large, uh, long time, we've had a black mayor and a black chief, mm -hmm. right? And you're saying that there was not any change or noticeable change done None. under them. Actually, it got worse watch. under Mitch Brown. He was a safety director. Mayor Coleman, they just, the chiefs really got absolute power under them. They really were hands off. There was literally nothing going on. They did whatever they wanted to do. When Jacobs was in, she did whatever she wanted to do. But now, with the Mayor Ganther going against the FOP and standing up to the division, that is huge. And I have to commend him for that. Because when we had a black mayor, that didn't happen. I guess, I know you don't know what's inside our mayor's mind. But do you think it would have happened if George Floyd had not been murdered? It was already happening. Remember, George Floyd just got murdered in this 2020. Almost a year ago. We started advocating for changes in 18. Well, I mean, and he changed. Our mayor. He, he made some changes. The mayor made changes in 19 to even giving us the EEO compliance officer. So, do you feel that Kim Jacobs didn't necessarily just retire? I I don't know for sure. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm just curious because for me it was a very Inquiring strange. It was mind. very strange. I remember how the ending happened, and she, it almost like she she disappeared. I know she, she had disappeared family issues. Disappeared in the fall. And then she came back in January and cleaned out her stuff and was gone. I think that was weird. It was, was but I have very... nothing to confirm anything other than right. her retiring. But I do know that he did start making changes before George Floyd. The BCI we asked for in the seven expectations mm -hmm. because of George Floyd, he pushed that. That was done deal. Seven expectations. What's that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the seven expectations are seven um, expectations we me and the pastors, like faith leaders across central Ohio, submitted to the mayor in fall of 2018. These are changes for, like three of the changes for internal changes inside the division of police, and the other changes are for external changes to help the community. And some of them, like the EEO compliance officer, we wanted, we wanted somebody independent we can complain on internally about discrimination. Okay. And he implemented that. Partially. Um, BCI, which is the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, we asked for them to take over police-involved shootings. And he finally did that in May of 2020, after the George Floyd protests, during the George Floyd protests, actually. He made that happen. So there's certain things he's done. There's several other expectations we're still waiting for. Mental health for officers. Mm -hmm. Mandatory. We want that. We want drug testing and alcohol testing for officers. Right now we have random testing. But if you get involved in a shooting and you kill someone as an officer, right now that person that dies, they're going to get a toxicology report, but the officer that did the shooting does not. And I don't think that's fair, and I think it's only fair that both of them get tested. If you're going to use the drugs against that person that got killed, the first thing they want to say is they had drugs in their system. Right. Then why don't we know if the officer has drugs in the system? That's right. If we're legitimate and yeah. we aren't using drugs and all that, it shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, let's be transparent. That's right. So that's what we're asking for that. 
And there's several other things we're asking for, but you got to get the book to see the rest of those people. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Well, let me ask Excellent. you about uh, something that you know is very important to those I work with. And now we've actually had a second state, New Mexico, just in qualified immunity. So like you said, not only can an officer shoot and kill someone, execute someone, they technically don't have to give a statement. And then we're looking at keeping their job and possibly getting off on everything because of qualified immunity. How do we end qualified immunity? Well, qualified immunity is really about the families getting... Actually, for me, qualified immunity is holding the officers accountable. Because right now, what it is is the doctrine that prevents you from suing an officer in his personal Personal. capacity, Mm -hmm. okay? Meaning that you can't come after my house. You can't come on my bank accounts. Right. So if I did something wrong to where you can sue me, and and you are eventually eventually found guilty of it, the money that they award you comes from the city's taxpayers' money. Us does not come from the officer. But to me, if you end qualified immunity and make it so where my money, my personal money will be on the line, and my personal house will be on the line, then I am going to act differently because I don't want you taking my house and my, and my, and my bank account money. Right. So to right. me, that's why we need to end qualified immunity. That's such a huge thing that if we were to end that one thing, it's, it would make a huge difference in behavior. Because nobody wants to put their money on risk or their family's house at risk. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to do that. So they're going to make sure they walk in line with the rules because they don't want to be able to be sued. And the fact is, in the qualified immunity, doesn't I'm going to give you the right to sue the person. You have to still have to stand in. You still have to get past the judge to even file the lawsuit. But right now, you only have the option to sue me personally. Hmm. You don't even have the option. No negligence at all. For, right. For- for, for any negligent type thing. Correct. Because wow. the way they have it written, it has to be, you could get past qualified immunity, but it's very slim. It's got to be the exact same circumstances. Say you say Andre Hill, if they want to get past qualified immunity on Andre Hill to sue Adam Coy personally, they would have to make, find a case that's already been adjudicated, already been found out to be guilty with the same exact facts. A guy was walking out of the garage, walking towards the officer. It was nighttime. It's got to be exact, that exact before they ever, before they're able to end qualified immunity on that particular case. Wow. So there are ways, but it's just it's ne- very next to impossible. Yes, next much. to impossible. So that's why we need to end it. And the way we're doing it now, there's a ballot initiative I'm working on where we're trying to put on the ballot 2022 mm-hmm. and have Ohio vote to abolish it. Mm-hmm. But hopefully before that time, legislature can get in there and abolish it. New York did it. Mexico did it. Let's do it. Well, I'm actively working on a ballot initiative now. We're getting signatures so we can try to get it on the 2022 ballot for Ohio. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been beautiful watching her, too. It's beautiful. She, yeah, I mean, the work that you're putting in, for sure. Like, I, I led this with... And I literally said, I think you supplement the work you do working for the Columbus Police Department. But you're putting in work as a real activist. You have been. Mm-hmm. I don't know that without your book, first of all, people have asked me, is she disgruntled? Is that why she wrote the book? Because she got fired. And I got to explain to them, she's still on the force. I never, ever got fired. Right. You're still there. 
Right. You're inside writing this book. Um, I don't understand how. I, it feels like you're, uh, you, you are an untouchable amongst untouchables. They, I, I call it bulletproof because bulletproof? my retirement status, I can leave today and be good. Wow. Yeah. And, cool. I, and I hate saying it, but I, so you don't have fear. We know that there have been officers who have moved out of state because mm -hmm. they knew their lives were in danger by their race's brethren. They knew where they lived. They felt their lives were in danger because they, the, the access to weapons are easy for a cop. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've left state. You're still here. Mm. I don't know if we're safe here you are. ourselves. Hey, no weapon formed against us. <laughs> right, right, there you go. I thought yes. I heard, I'm going to walk in that protection that <laughs> yes. you put out there That's earlier. Right. Okay. No weapon formed against. I but feel. also with no weapons formed against me. But I also have my AR-15 and my 40s <laughs> and my 45s too. So they can come up the hill if they want to. I'm just saying. It is what right. it is. So they right. know that I'm trained just like they train. So hey. it's different. The most, the most surprising thing that I read in the book, mama ain't raised no punk. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put that in there because she don't raise no punk. <laughs> I mean, she's still here. She's still here, <laughs> right, so right. apparently not. Right. Apparently not. Uh, this has been a beautiful day. Yes, it has. I've yes, had a really good day. Thank you very much. I, I can't wait to do the next one. Well, I'm so excited to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. Are you going to agree to the next one? Of course. <laughs> okay. of course. Look, I'm just, so. I'm just trying to block you in to make sure that there's no way you get out of this whatsoever. Do you think this book would have happened had 2020 not gone the way it did? Yes, because I started writing this book in 2019. Well, do you think people would have been as, as open to it? Because I feel there's been such a, an opener because of, unfortunately, what I happened think, in 2020. I think it helped. I think the 2020, it helped the Black Lives Matter movement tremendously. Right. I mean, we're allowed now, not just black people see what's going on. Right. Yeah. Our white yeah. allies see what's going on. The people actually that hold and the power. And they're stepping up. Yeah. And they're stepping up and helping us. So I think the whole movement in general wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for George Floyd and what happened in, in his, in, what, what happened to him. Well, of course, being in Columbus, Ohio, I got to say it because even though we've talked about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor over and over again, here we have Casey Goodson Jr. We have Andre Hill. Mm -hmm. We have two families who are suffering mm -hmm. bad. They want justice. They're trying to find justice. As most of us know, there's no family that's ever going to find justice because they've lost forever yeah. the ones they truly love. So there's never going to be justice for them. With you stepping up, I feel like it, it brings about a, a hope that we didn't have before because we have, we have very little to grasp onto anymore when it comes to police. We think we're going to lose our lives every time we go on these streets. When, when they come up behind me in a car, I'm in full panic mode because I don't know what this is going to lead to. I never know. Reading your book makes me feel stronger for the knowledge to begin with. Definitely empowering it empowers me to understand things I didn't before. And I didn't know I was going to come out with that. Having you at rallies with us, that empowers us. That makes us feel, I know in, in, in Dayton, there was nobody there that I didn't want to meet you. I didn't want to bother you as much as I could have that day. Cause I could have brought a, a good 10, 15 people to make sure they met you. Cause there are people who are telling me they're nervous to approach you. Cause they just don't know how to do it. Cause you have given and inspired so much now. 
Yeah, that was so nice. He said MLK. I kind of say Malcolm next because I feel a little bit of militant. Hey, perfect because you know we're yeah. coming religious trained, yeah, and then we're coming military trained on both sides. So for me, it's it's definitely an important uh, it's an important step for us to be able to have someone like you. No, well, thank you. I, I'm honored to be fighting in this fight with you, with the rest of the activists, and I know for them. They, I could tell that at first they were like, we don't know about her because she's right. the police. Is she really? Right. That's how uh, I was. <laughs> you know me too. <laughs> Even more. But I am the real deal. It's not for show. It's not for money. The book is $9.99 and it's on Amazon. So they have their royalties. They have the printing costs. So it's not making me money and that's not what it's for. And I priced it that low for that reason. I want everybody to be able to get their hands on it. I want them to read it. I think it's, it's something that confirms what we've always known. And I think that helps our fight. Definitely. That you know what you're saying is not make-believe because they want you to believe that it's yeah. all in your head. What is really not. And you have every right to be fearful when you get stopped by the police. Our right. system of policing looks at black men as the criminals. Right. So you got to be careful. You got to be careful. And like I tell people in the book, if I had one thing to give, of advice to give, is to commit one crime at a time. So if you got drugs on you, don't jaywalk. If you speed, right. don't have a gun in the car. You know what I'm saying? One crime at a time. Because it's how we get people. We get them because you're jaywalking and you have crack on you. You know? <laughs> and that's... Well, you speed and then you got like four guns in your car. You know? So don't do and break one more, one, more than one crime at a time. Right. It's right. a good game. Appreciate it. Well, I know this for sure. Adrian Hood said it best to me. When we're asking where are the good cops at, she's right here. Thank you. And this there's is, a bunch of them, but they're just so scared to speak out. And there's a victim of the system. And we need to tear the system down. And ending qualified immunity will help us do that. Coming here today was definitely a treat. I appreciate you opening your house. Thank you. And, Thank you for coming. And I had no real idea how to reciprocate uh, the appreciation. And I asked him, you know, what what do we do? Do we do we cook her dinner? Do we do that? Because we got a chef with us, and, and he, he was ready too. He had like four meals instantly. Uh, then, I, okay, that's too much. That's too much. We can't do that. Do we bring her a bottle of wine? What do we do? Uh, I gotta say, my big brother, he came up with the best idea. But honestly, you guys bought my book. You pushed my book. You've given my book. You've allowed me on your show. That's what platform. you've given us. Right. But does the platform though, it works But what do we ways. give you though? But we can have you, to give can you. Can you please accept? I will accept, but oh, I just okay. thought you gave me a lot already. Oh, that is so nice. Oh my God. We're going to get some camera work on that, too. Uh, go ahead go ahead and read it out. Go ahead and read it out. Explain what you got there. Look at this. It's a plaque, and it's got my cover of my book on the top. And at the bottom, it reads, Exodus Nation proudly honors Melissa McFadden. Your courage and dedication will empower change in Columbus for generations to come. I believe Aww, that wholeheartedly. That so sweet. I, share. I love it. Asha. Asha. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I just, I might take this to work. <laughs> I, you know what? Do you I, need us to get you another one? No, 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 no. Next show? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, one for no, home, no, one for no, work. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs>
Lieutenant, Lieutenant Melissa McFadden, my friend. Thank I you. appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. So beautiful. And yes. this has been a great day. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be back very soon, brothers and sisters. Take care of one another. Look out for one another. And as she has told me before, when you see a traffic stop, don't just roll by. Watch the traffic stop. It's your right. Stay away. Let the police do their job. Put it on video camera if you have to, because someone's life could possibly depend on you. With that being said, for my brother Tiger, Melissa McFadden, Tyrone Morris behind that camera, love y'all. Love Be you careful. too. Be careful. Accident. <laughs> you can't sing no matter what Melissa this is says. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Hold on one quick second. I'm going to pull this down a little bit because I know that camera is not getting all of you because <laughs> that microphone's in the way. Mm-hmm. How's that look, bro? Look good? See how I did my okay. microphone. Yeah, I do. I do. Mm-hmm. I like to cover my face, so I'm good with mine. Mm-hmm. But I don't want you covering your face, and he loves his face. So, okay. <laughs> like everybody loves their face. Y'all silly. I don't. Not I don't everybody loves their face. Not everybody exactly. loves their face. Thank so. you. Thank you. Shout out to the people who don't love their face. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that shout out. <laughs> so